Hey, welcome to part two of this topic on severe reactive airway emergencies. Just a reminder that these two episodes are serialized, meaning that you will get more out of this by listening to part one first. All right, enjoy. The next thing I want to talk about now is steroids. I 100% agree that steroids are a mainstay of treating these exacerbations, and I 100% agree that it should be a priority to get them into the patient. However, I would put them as a priority number two after all of the priority number one medications, i.e. the bronchodilators, both inhaled and intravenous that we've just talked about. So for me, as soon as somebody is standing idle, that is the time for them to go get the steroid and to administer that. IV is typically easier when someone's short of breath. It's very difficult to swallow oral steroids, but honestly, it doesn't matter. There's no significant difference in terms of onset, whether that steroid is given orally or IV. So pick a steroid, just give it. Don't agonize over the dose. More is probably better at this point. It's not really going to make much difference though. So as soon as somebody's freed up, get that dexamethasone or methylpred or prednisone or whatever, get a reasonable dose into them, and now all you have to do is keep them alive for the next four to six hours until that kicks in and saves the day. Easy. As I say, priority number two, get it done, but not at the expense of delaying any of the priority number one objectives. Next thing we should talk about is magnesium sulfate. Now I have a small revision on this particular drug. I always thought of MagSulf in severe reactive airway disease management as having only weak evidence of offering a weak benefit. But I wanted to do a little more digging to ensure that I'm not misleading anyone. The most recent high quality evidence I can find is from the year 2000. Now it's a meta-analysis, so we know what that means. Lots of small, poor quality trials showing highly variable results. And indeed, this meta-analysis reviewed 210 articles. So clearly these experts are splitting hairs in order to come to a definitive conclusion. And that definitive conclusion? Adjuvant bolus IV magsulf in acute bronchospasm appears statistically beneficial in improving spirometric airway functions by 16% of a standard deviation, although the clinical significance of this is uncertain. Given the safety of IV magnesium therapy and its low cost, it should be considered absent contraindications in patients with moderate to severe acute bronchospasm. So that pretty much sums up exactly my feelings on MagSulf. It's cheap, it's safe, it's unlikely to cause harm, it's unlikely to have a major benefit. So don't fixate on it and don't pause because you think it has any serious chance of leading to a miraculous recovery. But tier three priority after your team has accomplished this stuff that actually works, magnesium sulfate, two grams IV given over 20 minutes is not an unreasonable thing to try. Next drug I wanna talk about is ketamine. Ketamine is pretty much my favorite drug in the emergency department. It's like a Swiss army knife of amazingness. And one of its amazing features is of course the bronchodilation aspect of it. So if you are thinking about giving someone a medication for analgesic or sedative purposes, for example, you're thinking about intubating, hands down, ketamine needs to be the drug that you think of. But I don't wanna jump right into intubation. As I think everybody knows, intubation and asthma exacerbations or COPD exacerbations is really not a very good thing. You want to try and avoid that until you have no choice. And to me, that means this person is peri-arrest or this person is pooping out to the point that they can no longer maintain their own breathing efforts. They're just too exhausted. And that's when I begin to think about intubation. And at that point, I should definitely be thinking about ketamine if I haven't already. 
but we should be thinking about ketamine prior to that. Before we go into invasive positive pressure ventilation, i.e. intubating somebody, we should think about non-invasive positive pressure ventilation. That would be a bag valve mask, or if you have the technology and the comfort, then BiPAP. And so we should really be looking at somebody who is working hard to breathe, probably not having very much effectiveness in terms of moving gas, and we should be looking at augmenting them sooner than later. And as soon as you begin to think about that, that is the perfect opportunity to bring out low-dose ketamine and get that in for two reasons. Number one, the bronchodilatory effects, but number two, you're also going to relax somebody, make them a little bit more comfortable, and kind of zone them out a little bit so that they're a little bit more receptive and easier to coordinate in terms of managing your bag mask ventilation or your BiPAP. I'm talking start with maybe 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, say roughly 10 milligrams for an adult or so, and titrate it gently up from there. I would not be going beyond 0.3 milligrams per kilogram for fear of getting them into dissociation. I think probably you're not gonna get a lot more bronchodilatory benefit beyond that 0.3 milligrams per kilogram, and now you're getting into the risk of potentially dissociating and making them more uncomfortable. So I would stop at 0.3, and then at some stage, if we decide we have to move to intubation, then I would just top them right up to two milligrams per kilogram and put them to sleep and get that tube in. Ketamine, wonder drug for so many reasons, and don't forget about it in terms of these reactive airway disease exacerbations. Now, if you wanna get fancy, you can talk about Heliox. Heliox is a tank of gas, which is, as it sounds, a combination of helium and oxygen. And I don't really know much beyond that about it. It has something to do with decreasing the viscosity of the gas flow in the lungs, and therefore you can get oxygen molecules into places a little bit more easily because the gas is more slippery, something like that. The reality is, in Canada, it's really not widely available. In fact, I've only ever had access to it once when I was working in a tertiary care department in a city downtown core and I have not seen it since. I've certainly never heard of it being available in a rural location. You have to have RTs available to use this as far as I'm concerned. And so Heliox is really something that I think of as window dressing. If you have RTs there that have this, that are keen about it, then by all means, fill your boots as a tier two priority type thing where you're not delaying something more valuable, but I don't really see it being all that helpful particularly in rural communities where there's no way you're going to have access to it in 2021. Now, in my anecdotal experience, I did have a severe reaction in this particular tertiary care emergency department. The RT was super keen about using Heliox. She felt it was going to be a save-all, and she got it all set up, and it did nothing. And ironically, as she was setting that up, I was getting intubation equipment ready and she looked over at me and said, oh, you don't need to do that. That's something I can do. And I said, you know, you're busy with the Heliox and it would just make me feel better if this is set up ready to go. Because I could see this patient beginning to swirl the drain and I just wasn't convinced this Heliox was going to do what the RT thought it was going to do. Anyway, in the end it failed. We had to intubate the patient and I was very happy that my tube and laryngoscope and all my other equipment was laid out. So. That's Heliox in a nutshell. I would not spend too much time or energy learning about that unless you happen to be working in a place where you have access to that, which is pretty unlikely if you're listening to this Rural and Remote Resuscitation Rounds podcast. All right, next thing, epinephrine. As we know, epinephrine is one of those big gun drugs that we use as a Hail Mary in anaphylaxis and cardiac arrest. 
When you have somebody in a severe reactive airway disease exacerbation, this is a life-threatening event, and it actually has some similarities to anaphylaxis. I mean, the pathophysiology of reactive airways diseases is not really that different from anaphylaxis. It's just more contained to the lungs. And if you don't do anything fast enough, you're going to end up in a cardiac arrest situation. So it actually has a fair amount of overlap. Epinephrine's a reasonable choice. The thing is, compare intravenous epinephrine with intravenous salbutamol, and looking at how those two drugs operate, salbutamol obviously is highly selective towards the lungs, much more so than epinephrine. Whereas epinephrine certainly has that potent effect for the lungs, but it also has all of the cardiovascular effects, which may not be desirable if that patient is still pre-arrest. So in my mind, I would much rather go hard and heavy with the salbutamol intravenous, first of all, and exhaust that, and then consider going to epinephrine if we get to the arrest stage, or, for example, if we have no access to the liquid salbutamol in the nebules, then I think it's time to think about epinephrine seriously. And the dose I would probably start with would be very, very small. I would probably start with 10 micrograms. So that's one one-hundredth of your standard one milligram epinephrine dose. The easiest way to get that is to take one milligram, doesn't matter what solution that's in, if it's a one milligram in one milliliter ampule or a one milligram in 10 milliliter ampule, it's completely relevant. Take that one milligram, inject it into a one liter bag of saline, and now you essentially have one microgram per milliliter in that bag. So if you want 10 micrograms, you just draw out 10 milliliters and you're good to go. Okay, so I think that covers the primary things that we have access to in a rural emergency department that we would want to pull out very, very quickly if we have somebody who is in severe or a refractory reactive airway disease exacerbation states. So again, to summarize, hit them hard with salbutamol, don't stop at the MDI, nebulize it if you think that there is an airflow issue because you're more likely to get more molecules into the tissue where it reacts if you can nebulize it. If you can't for whatever reason, then think about using intravenous salbutamol. You just drop 250 micrograms, that's one-tenth of your standard 2,500 microgram dose in the nebule, and you administer that IV. And don't hesitate to double that and give multiple doses every 60 seconds until you get a reaction or you need to change paths and add something else on. Get those steroids in early, but think of that as a secondary priority. Don't delay the other things that we're talking about in order to put steroids in, but make sure that they get in at their earliest possible convenience as soon as that IV and those operators are available to do it. MagSelf, you can think about that at the very end of the list. You can go look up the dose online because by that point you've tried all of the stuff that actually has some science behind it. Ketamine. Think about that early on in conjunction with assisting airway. So get the bag valve mask out, give that patient just a low dose of ketamine, 0.1 milligrams per kilogram, say seven to 10 milligrams or so, and that will chill them out a little bit and make it a lot easier to supplement their breathing. Don't underestimate how challenging that can be. The ketamine will make a big difference in terms of making it easy to time your supplementary breaths with your bag valve mask or BiPAP with their spontaneous efforts. And if you're getting to the point where they're pooping out and you're not moving enough air, you probably have no choice but to intubate them. So intubate them early with a big dose of ketamine, paralyze them, get that tube down, and do what you can to try and keep their oxygen 
relatively high. Bear in mind that when you're ventilating someone with severe reactive airway disease, you're going to need to use a very long exhalation time because the issue is not getting the air into the lung. That's relatively easy. The problem is the semi-ball valve effect of air coming out of the lungs. As the pressure diminishes, the lungs kind of collapse and that makes it harder for the air to come out of the lungs. And so you need that really long exhalation period. So it's not uncommon that we will give them five or six seconds of pure exhalation between breaths. Be careful you don't overpressure them and cause a pneumothorax. And on that note, obviously, anytime you have someone in respiratory extremis, you want to think a little bit more broadly. You don't want to tunnel vision into this one particular reactive airway disease diagnosis. You want to stand back, listen with your stethoscope, maybe get your ultrasound out, and make sure that you're not dealing with a concomitant pneumothorax or other pathology that also could be potentially reversible and help with the situation. Okay, now we're on to the second learning objective which is the importance of being maximally aggressive when you identify someone with a life-threatening condition that is rapidly deteriorating in front of you. We're talking about severe reactive airway disease, but this could pertain to somebody who is in severe sepsis, peri-arrest. This could pertain to somebody who's anaphylaxis. These are the important conditions where you have to know how to react very quickly and very aggressively because you have a very narrow window to turn this around and prevent cardiac arrest. Unfortunately, when these conditions go on to cardiac arrest, it becomes a very high mortality situation. If you can't reverse them when they still have their own heartbeat, you're likely not going to reverse them when you're doing CPR on them. So again, I think to be a really good emergency physician, regardless of whether that's your full-time job or whether you're just picking up one shift a month to help out in your local community, it's important to know these doses. And if you don't do this frequently enough to remember them, then maybe you need to have a very precise cue card system that you can just grab very quickly and know in one glance what your critical doses are and what your critical four or five steps are for the management of these life-threatening situations. And so let me put in a plug for something called the resuscitation crisis manual. This is a checklist book that is available online. You can just look it up. This is a book that was put together by Scott Weingart and an Australian anesthesiologist. And these checklists are brilliant. Basically, you have about 40 pages. Every page has a different topic, anaphylaxis, septic shock, pneumothorax, things like that. The big scary emergencies. And it gives you in bullet form 10 steps that you can follow with the doses and helps you get that first five minutes of stabilization out of the way where all of the big stuff is done and that then affords you time to calm down, to call the city, to arrange the helicopter, whatever it is you need to do. And if you don't have your own checklist system, I would highly recommend investing in the 50 or so dollars to get this book and make sure it is present with you at every emergency shift that you perform just to ensure that you can be maximally aggressive when the time calls for it. All right, gang, I think that's about all I have to say on this topic. I hope it was helpful. I wish you all a very happy new year and happy holidays with your family if you have that opportunity. Stay safe out there, and we will look forward to producing some more content for you early in the new year. Take care. Bye-bye.